my favourite scenes in all of movie history it occurs in the 1996 film Heat. So I don't know if you've heard of that film, Heat. I don't know if you've seen it. Perhaps you shouldn't. I don't know. I can't really remember. Um, but if you haven't seen it, Heat tells an old-fashioned baddies and goodies type tale. Okay, baddies and goodies, you've got the baddies. You've got bank robbers on one side. Really old-fashioned tale. Bank robbers on one side. And then you've got the police, the goodies on the other, baddies and goodies. Now, to appreciate the scene that I'm talking about just now, you really have to understand something of the context. At this point in the film, the bank robbers are about to attempt their latest heist. And the police, they know about it. They just don't know where it's going to be. So they know that the bank robbers are going to hit a bank. They just don't know where. And so do you know what happens? To goad them, the head of the bank robbers, so a character played by Robert De Niro, the head of the bank robbers, what he does is agrees to meet with the head of the police, a character played by Al Pacino. And what a scene it is. It really is one of the best scenes. It takes place in this calm American diner. There's hardly anybody else there. But you've got two actors at the top of their game. You've got De Niro and Pacino. And they're sitting opposite each other over a coffee. And they're staring each other down. It is bad versus good. That's what you're supposed to think. You know, this is goodness versus evil. What's happening? They're going head to head. They're going man, toe to toe, man on man. Now, I love that scene. I think it's brilliant. And much as I love it, I need you to understand that what you have got in front of you just now in Scripture simply blows it out of the water when it comes to drama and when it comes to tension. And maybe already the cogs go and you understand what I mean, do you? I mean, think about the characters involved. What are we dealing with this morning in Luke chapter 4? On one hand, we have got the Son of God himself. We've got the Lord Jesus Christ, the one through whom all things have been created. We've got him. And on the other side, do we, who do we have? Eh? Who do we have? We've got the devil. We've got Satan. We've got the enemy of the church, the enemy of God. Do you see what I'm saying to you? This before you now is drama unparalleled. Like this is a tete, a tete. This is a head to head like never before, never since. Don't you think it's our privilege? Don't you think it's our, our joy, therefore, to be able to turn to this this morning in Holy Scripture? And so can, can I simply ask you right now eh, to do that, like to have your Bible open? Will you do that? Would you look to Luke chapter 4, have it open in front of you as we consider the first heading this morning? The first heading is this, the testing that Jesus faces, okay? The testing that Jesus faces, and as some of you are looking up this section on your iPhone, and as some of you are turning to it in front of you, let me just throw out what we're going to try and do in this first heading, okay? And this, under this first heading, what I want us to do is just to try and skim over these three tests that Jesus faced. Did everyone notice that? That it's not two temptations, it's not four, it's three tests that Jesus faces. So under the first heading this morning, I just want to have a really quick, brief scan over an overview of these three tests. Okay, so 
What's the first test? Let's look at it. Well, we look at it, look at verse three. So if young and old, the boys and girls, you look at verse three as well. What's the first test? What is it that the devil says? Friends, what does the devil say to the Lord Jesus? Do you see it? You got it? If you are, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. If you are this son of God. Now, I think we've got to make sure of our footing here in case we go awry. I think, do you know what? I think we all understand that when Satan here says, if you are the son of God, I think we all understand, don't we, that he's not doubting that that's the case. Do we understand that? When he says, if you are the son of God, there's not doubt in the devil's mind. I mean, think about what we read earlier on. We read Jesus' baptism, didn't we, in chapter 3? So do you see that there is still this declaration from the Father, his delight in the Son. That declaration is kind of still hanging in the air, isn't it? So it's not that Satan is doubting that Jesus is the Son of God. What, what is it? What is it? Satan here is enticing Jesus to use the power he has as Son for himself. Everyone with me? Satan enticing Jesus to go against the Father's will that Jesus live a fully, fully, fully human experience. Enticing Jesus, go against that. Use the power you have for personal gain. Do we all get that? Satan is not doubting that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's fine, right? That's good, fine, got it. But do we not also, friends, have to pay attention to the exact wording that Satan uses here? Do we not need to do that? Well, I I wonder if you noticed when we read this out that Jesus has been fasting at this point. We all picked up on that. Did we, friends? Jesus has been fasting. In fact, did you notice for how long it is that Jesus has gone without food? Listen to what I'm going to say to you. He has been without food for over a month. Now, I know, like I'm, I'm not daft. I know that a lot of you have heard this portion of scripture uh, preached on, right? Lots of you have studied this portion of scripture in the past, haven't you, friends? You have. But I wonder, have you ever stopped to think about what a person looks like who has been fasting without food for over a month? Like, I, I need to say to you, like, Jesus at this point is weak. I mean, it's like real, it's skin and bone. Like, do you know that at this point, his internal organs are just at the point of giving up the ghost? Like, Jesus is at the point of full and proper starvation. And what was it again that Satan said to him? If you are the son of God, what was it? Command this stone to become what? Bread. I mean, can you imagine, in a sense, can you imagine how much Jesus, in a sense, would have wanted bread. Do you see the point? Listen to me. This is it. That here, Satan is enticing Jesus to put physical concern over and above spiritual needs. Does everyone hear that? This first test, Satan enticing Jesus to put physical concerns over above spiritual needs. Now friends, I I really urge you, want you to hear what I'm going to say to you next. These three temptations of the Lord Jesus Christ are unique to the Son of God. You hear that? I think everybody understands that, don't they? Like on the tube on the way home, or on a motorbike on the way home perhaps, or in a car on the way home, you are not going to be tempted by Satan to turn a stone and the bread. Okay, so these tests are unique to the Son of God, which we'll deal with more in a minute. 
But what I want you to wrestle with is this. This is what J.C. Ryle, the famous minister, said. He said on this, he said, Yes, but the master's lot will be the lot of his disciples. So do you see the idea? That those these things are unique to Jesus, you and I will face similar attacks from the evil one in our lives. Hearing that, Christian friend? You and I will face similar satanic attacks and similar strategies. And I reckon, if you just think about that for a moment here in this first test, you'll see a parallel. Is this not true? That in the Christian life, you and I are also often tempted by Satan to do what? To put our apparent physical need ahead of spiritual concerns? Are you not tempted by Satan to do that? To put your apparent physical needs sometimes ahead of spiritual concerns? Can I give you a couple examples? I mean, what about, let's go for it. What about sexual desire? Let's go there. It's dodgy areas, dodgy subject. I mean, come on. If you're married or if you're single, what is it that Satan very often whispers to you? You are sexually deprived. You need to do this, whatever that sinful thing might be. You know, Satan whispers to you, forget about your father's desire for your sexual purity. Forget about that. You you need to do this thing. Or what about our use of time? There's another area. What about our use of time? What does Satan very often whisper to us? You need more me time. You need more downtime. You need more relaxation time. Forget about the kids. Leave the kids. Forget about the service at the church. Forget about the, forget about the task you've got to do for work. Put your feet up. Binge on Netflix yet again. Do you see what I'm saying? Like the Lord Jesus Christ. Though these things are unique, like the Lord Jesus Christ, we also often face physical temptation. Okay. Let's do it. Let's look at the second one. Look at verse 5, please. Boys and girls, you can do it as well. The second test. Look at verse 5. Can we find it? So the devil now takes Jesus up and he shows him all the kingdoms, all the empires, all the kingdoms of the world. So Jesus has shown these. And then Satan, uh, he offers these to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a really common question that most people ask about the second test. Can you see what the question is? Lots of people ask, is this a physical reality? Do you see it? The idea, the question is, did Satan physically take Jesus up into the sky, into a vantage point where he could see all the empires of the world? Or is this more, a more of a vision? You see the question, lots of people love to wrestle with that. And to, I am not even going to go there. Okay? And I'll, I'll tell you why. I am not sure that it matters. Like, is this a physical reality? Is it a vision before the Lord Jesus Christ? That's not what's important. What's important here? What is important is you and I understand the nature of this test. And, 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 and do want you hear it? Listen to me. Think about it. By showing Jesus all the empires of the world, what is Satan doing? He's enticing Jesus to forsake his God-given task as savior. He shows him all the kingdoms and all the empires and he is tempting him to reject that God-given role, that job that he has to save his people from sin. And if you don't follow that, and if you don't get it, look at verse 6. 
Look at the terms that Satan uses. There's so much. Look at verse 6. What does he say? What words does he use? Glory. I'll give you glory. Look at that. I'll give you authority. He's saying, I'll give you. Do you see what Satan's doing? He's saying here to Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. Do you understand? Glory. Glory. Authority. Nations, all these things that the Father has promised you through this work of... You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to die for these people. Satan saying to them, I will give you that glory. I will give you the shortcut. I will give you all of this. And I will give you it now. And I will give you it today. Forsake your task. Forsake that role. And I just want to, for you this morning, repeat what I said a moment ago. I wonder if you can remember what I said. Can you? I said that though these ta- these tests are unique, that there are parallels for you, and maybe you see that already. I see it. I mean, is it not the case that we too in the Christian life face vocational temptation from the evil one? As with Jesus, Satan comes to us in the Christian life. What does he do? He tempts us to forsake God's calling on our lives in favor of shortcuts for our own personal glory and personal fame and personal wealth. Vocational temptation. And do you want some examples of that? It's fairly easy. What about you in here just now? We've been called by God perhaps to more overt Christian service overt Christian work and what's the temptation that Satan puts at your door? Tempted to reject that call in favor of worldly gain. Right? Isn't that the case for some of you? Isn't it the case for others that God calls you to take more seriously this task of serving well your household? God calls you to take more seriously your family, take more seriously your spouse, take more seriously the training and admonition of the kids. And what's the temptation you face right now? Temptation is forget that. I have nothing to do with that. I want advance for me in the workplace. I want that or the rest of us. What's God's calling on us? Christian life sacrifice, self-denial. There's the calling. There's the task before us. What's the temptation? Our temptation. I don't want that. I'm rejecting. Friends, do you see that? Does that resonate perhaps even with your life? If so, all I want you to do right now is to contemplate in Luke chapter 4 just who it is that stands behind such temptation. And then do this with me. Will you please for the third test, look at verse 9. Let's look at verse 9. Boys and girls, if you can pause your worksheet and look at verse 9. So this time, Satan takes Jesus. This is physical. Takes Jesus to Jerusalem, where he has Jesus. Now follow it carefully. He takes Jesus to stand at the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. What's the temptation? What's the test? Tempts him. To jump off. <laughs> I've got a dress. Uh, maybe the elephant of the room, the elephant in the room. Because maybe you're thinking that's the strangest thing you've ever read in your life. And, and, and it is in a sense, like it is. Don't you think it's a, a bit, what's this? <laughs> the son of God is taken. You know, there's this, oh, you know, the pinnacle of the temple. You have the son of God and the devil together, which is just, 
it's bizarre in itself, right? Isn't it? And then what is the temptation? To, 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 to jump off the temple. Isn't it strange? You thinking it's strange. You think of this as a bit odd. Do you not see the nature of the test? Our Lord here is tempted to presume upon his father. He's here tempted to force his father's hand. He's here tempted to say to his father, Father, I am going to act the way that I want to act and you are just going to have to live with it. You are just going to have to deal with it. You are just going to have to come to my aid. You are going to have to come to my rescue. Now, friends, the risk is sounding like a broken record for the third time. Let me say this mantra this morning to you. Though these tests are unique, there's something similar. There's a parallel for you and me. Because does that there, that test, not sound very similar to the way that you and I are very often tempted to, to, to live and act in the Christian life? See, I know this, even though I've been away for a few weeks, uh, sunning myself uh, in the European sunshine, I know this, that there's a lot of people in our congregation who right now are facing big decisions in their life. It's almost always the case at LCPC. So I know that some of you are facing decisions about where you live. You're facing decisions about your work, facing decisions about relationships, facing decisions about health matters and treatment and all that sort of thing. Now, here's the deal. How, how do we deal with these decisions? We know what we should do, right? Don't we? If we're faced with a big, huge decision in our life as a Christian, what, do we, what should we do? What should we do? We should commit this to God in prayer, real prayer, perhaps even fast over these decisions. We should go to God's word, pour ourselves into it, seeking God's face. But how oft, how is it that we often actually deal with decisions? What do we do? We do this, don't we? We basically say to God, I am going to do what I want to do, and you're going to have to deal with it. Lord, I'm going to do what I want to do, and you're going to have to pick up the pieces. We act and we pray afterwards, don't we? We do what we want to do and we say to God, you're going to have to come to my aid. If this goes wrong, you're just going to have to pick up all of the pieces and rescue me. Friends, when you see that, the parallels here, aren't you glad that Jesus is different to us? Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is able and willing to fight and resist the attacks of the evil one? So we see here the testing Jesus faces much more briefly, believe me. Secondly, let's consider the weapon Jesus uses. Everyone got it? The weapon that Jesus uses. Okay, here, let me just chuck this out there. You chew in it, see what you think. That the constant temptations in the Christian life can bring us down. Is that true of your life? Is it? That with the Christian life being this ongoing, constant battle with sin, the evil one, battle with the flesh, battle with testing, that we can become sometimes weary of fight. Yes? Well, with this portion of scripture, secondarily or partly in a way, playing the role of an example of how to fight temptation, surely what we have to do is analyze how Jesus Christ resists the evil one. Don't we? You know, for our bent, for the praise of Christ, but for your Christian experience, we have to think about how does he resist? I mean, what weapon 
does Jesus use? Well, you all remember Lackey MacDonald. Do you remember Lackey MacDonald? The minister who was down, what was it, the start of last month? Uh, from, I would try and pronounce his church name, what was it, Alapool and Koyach Free Church in Scotland. Lachy came down and he preached to us. Most of you remember that, I'm sure. And, and you remember the sermons that he preached on the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6. My son is nodding as an encouragement to me. Okay, so we remember it. Well, if you think back to that, isn't it interesting to think that there is one offensive attacking weapon listed in Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. Do you see? Only one weapon of attack. Think about it. There is the shield of faith. Isn't there a defensive thing? There's the helmet of salvation to defend us, the breastplate of righteousness. What's the only attacking weapon? Come on, what is it? It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, what's the obvious thing for me to say to you this morning? That's the weapon that the Lord Jesus Christ uses to resist the evil one and temptation, doesn't it? He fights back when Satan comes to him and he fights back with the word of God. But uh, wait a minute, how does that help you? How does that help me particularly this week with the tests and the temptations we face? Let me do this. Let me show you some things here. First of all, do you notice that scripture in verse 4, is a sufficient weapon. Look at verse 4. A sufficient weapon. Do you see verse 4? Look how it starts, friend. So Jesus fights back to this temptation. It is, and Jesus answered him, it is written. Then if you're quick, look at verse 8. Start at verse 8. Jesus says, same thing, right? Isn't it? Then look at verse 12. Same thing Jesus says, it said. Now, I, I, the easy thing for me to say to you is, the obvious thing to say is, Jesus fights each of the tests with Scripture. So it's his constant strategy to fight temptation with God's Word. Now, that's great. That's fine. That's not what I want you to notice. I want you to think about the fact that is all he does. Now, linger on that for a moment. Now, Jesus Christ, in this portion of Scripture here in Luke's Gospel, faced with temptation, what does he do? He doesn't quote Scripture and then summon angelic legions to fight. He doesn't quote Scripture and then launch in a big diatribe. The only thing necessary for the Lord Jesus Christ, equipped and helped by the Holy Spirit, the only thing necessary to fight this temptation was the use of recitation of God's holy word. I don't know about you. For me in the Christian life, I find that revolutionary. Because you know what we're like in the Christian church when it comes to temptations. We can write so many books about devices to be used in tests and temptations, can't we? There's so many books out there about, this device is great for fighting temptation, and this is brilliant, and this device, and this plan, this strategy. And do you know what? Some of that is brilliant. Some of it is marvelous, but what does God remind us of here? He reminds you of the power of his word in fighting temptation, doesn't he? He reminds you the scripture is more powerful than any sharp double-edged sword. It is, friends, sufficient for that fight against temptation. Then I want you to notice another one. Notice that scripture here is also a really suitable weapon. And since I'm 
binging on 1990s films, obviously. Let me go for another one. Do you remember that quote in the film, The Untouchables? Do you know the film, The Untouchables? I'm sure you do. It's a Kevin Costner, big sort of gangster type film. And there's a brilliant line, a famous line, because one of the baddies, one of the gangsters, comes at Sean Connery with a flick knife, okay, in a hallway, which you should never do to a Scotsman, okay? And he comes to Sean Connery, and he's going to attack Sean Connery with a knife. What does Sean Connery do? Sean Connery stands there. I will resist the temptation to do a Sean Connery impression. But he, he looks at this man coming, and he pulls out a gun. And he looks at the guy and says, look at him. He's taken a knife to a gunfight and then he fills him full of holes. Now, my point here is that that is not what the Lord Jesus Christ does here. He does not take a knife to a gunfight. He uses in scripture a suitable weapon. Now, think about the temptations. First one, Satan says what? Command this stone to become bread. And what does Jesus say back to him? Man shall not live by Bread alone. Like, do you see it? Like, this is a suitable response. Scripture has something pertinent to say to the temptation. It's perfect. It's suitable, this weapon. Second test, the same. It's about worship. Scripture has something to say. Third temptation, about presuming a God. Scripture has something to say. Do you, Christian friend, in your life, do you see the point? No matter the temptation that you are facing, be it pornography, be it with money, be it with greed, infidelity, be it with your temperament. Scripture has something suitable to say. It is a perfect weapon for your fight. So it is sufficient, Scripture. It is suitable. But the last one here, it is a studied weapon, a studied weapon. And I need to get the boys and girls to listen and look at me just now. This is awkward because there's some at the front. Oh, my tail's at the back too. I've got the boys. So you listen to me for a moment. Here's the question for you boys and girls. Did you, you paid attention to the reading, did you? Yes? And you notice that Satan has come to Jesus trying to get him to sin. And Jesus is resisting with the word of God. Now, here's my question for you boys and girls. Did you notice the verse where Jesus goes into his backpack and he gets a laptop out? And he types in to Google verses for temptation about worship. Did you notice that verse? No. No, you didn't notice that verse, okay? Did you notice the verse where Jesus goes into his backpack and he gets a really long scroll of Holy Scripture out? And he sort of looks through it for a verse about presuming on God. And then he reads, did you notice that verse? No. Why did you not notice that verse? Because it's not there. How is Jesus able to respond with scripture at this point in time, isolated as he is. How is because he knows it by heart. And he knows it by memory. And isn't that for the rest of us and for the boys and girls, isn't that a practical application? Because I think if you're a Christian, you know this, that very often temptation and testing come to you when you are least expecting it. Testing comes to you in a moment. Like temptation from the evil one does not take a big long run up in your life, does it? You see it coming from a thousand yards off. No, it's there and it's immediate. What's the application here? You surely need to know your Bible better. 
I want to ask this really, really tie in with a question for you. Because I know, you know the types of temptation you face in your life. You're not foolish. You recognize where your areas of weakness are. So here's my question. When you consider those topics of weakness, how much scripture have you memorized on those topics? Like how much scripture do you actually know by heart in these areas of, of weakness? Friends, we need to know our Bible better. We need to read it. We need to study it. But we need to memorize Scripture. So when Satan comes to you, you are ready and prepared to fight back the sword of the Spirit. And then I'm going to close the third thing very briefly. We've seen the testing Jesus faces. We've seen the weapon that Jesus uses. The third thing is the salvation that Jesus provides make sure you get it the salvation that jesus provides and here as we come into land really the question that i'm addressing is what is the fuss all about do you you see what i mean like what's the fuss all about like for centuries the church has focused on this portion of scripture like there has been, as it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, this temptation of Christ. And for decades and centuries, the church has written books about it, and sermon series have been preached, and all these spotlights are focused on Luke chapter 4. So I'm, I'm saying, right, okay, it's great, and it's, what's all the fuss about here? What's the fuss about? What's the big deal? Well, it might sound odd to you. I actually think... The setting gives us the answer. Have a look at verse 1. Where does this take place? In the wilderness. And maybe you're thinking that's really odd. Are you? Like you, you think, think it through for, with me. You think, well, why, why could Jesus not have been tempted in a house? Right? Like he was just at the Jordan River. Why could he not have been tested there? Why was he not tested on his way from Jerusalem to Capernaum. Why? Because do you notice it's very deliberate. It's, the Holy Spirit is involved in taking him into the wilderness. Like why the wilderness? Well, some people think there is a very clear link to Adam, our very first forefather here. Maybe you see what I mean. Do you? Where Adam was tested in the beautiful surroundings of the Garden of Eden tested by Satan and fell, what does our second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, do? In the much more harsh and difficult surroundings of the wilderness, he resists even more ferocious attempts by Satan. He resists them and resists them perfectly. And I think, do you know what? I think there's maybe legs in that because the last verse of chapter 3 specifically calls Jesus the son of Adam, the son of God. So you with me? Why is it wilderness? Lots of people say, oh, there's a link here with Adam in the garden and so forth. Now, I like that. I like it. I think there's something even more pronounced and beautiful here. Because you know your Bibles. And you know that one of the greatest events in all of the Old Testament was the exodus from Egypt. Everybody knows that portion of scripture well, don't they? Everybody knows the exodus of Egypt. It was something ingrained in the consciousness of the people of Israel. Well, I've got a question for you because we're closing and I can turn it over to you. Do you, when you read this portion of scripture, do you see what the Holy Spirit is doing? Like, do you see the very deliberate lines that the Holy Spirit draws from Luke 4 to the exodus of Egypt? Do you see the very obvious things that the Holy Spirit that Luke's doing here? 
Like, think about, what did we say? Where's the location? It is the wilderness. Where were the people of Israel? Where did they end up after Exodus? They were in the wilderness. And wait a minute, what happens with Jesus in Luke chapter 4? Now, think about it. He is tested through hunger. What happened in the Exodus of Egypt? They, They go into the wilderness and they're tested. They fail that test. They grumble against God. They want, they want to go back to Egypt, you see, until the manna is there. And then did you notice the actual verses that Jesus quotes? Do you know that they're all taken from that Exodus event, all from Deuteronomy? And then what's the clincher? For how many days? Did the Lord Jesus Christ face tempting? I said it was over a month that he hungered. For how many days is it? It is 40, isn't it? Just as the Exodus people endured that wilderness for 40 years. Friends, you see, don't you, the Holy Spirit drawing these lines, drawing you back to the Exodus event. And if you see that, surely right now you see what all the fuss is about in Luke chapter 4. You see why it's such a big deal. Because what have you been shown here? One, unlike any other, who is able to save. One, unlike Adam, unlike the people of Israel, who is able to resist temptation and who is able to meet God's bar of salvation. Just as that baptism showed us Jesus' credentials. He's the Son of God. So the testing shows us his competency. He is able to save people from their sins. And so I do close speaking to you if you are not a Christian in here this morning. Two things to say to you. One, your sin is greater and worse than you know. Like maybe there's people in here who are not Christians and they think that they, their sin is not significant. Maybe you look back at these giving in to temptations, you think it's not that big a deal. You need to understand that your sin infinitely offends an infinitely holy God. Your very nature as a sinner renders you at war with the Almighty. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to hear is that before you in Luke 4 is your only hope. You can't turn over a new chapter in your life sufficiently. You can't pull yourself up by your socks. You cannot save yourself. No matter how hard you try to live a better life, it's going to do you no good whatsoever. No one else here can help you. This before you in Jesus Christ is your only hope. He is the only one who has met God's bar of salvation. Friends, I plead with you to turn to Christ Jesus. See that you are a sinner. Repent and believe in him. He is the triumphant one. Isn't that what raises your soul if you're a Christian reading Luke chapter 4? He is one for you. He loves you so much for you. He has shown himself victorious over the devil, victorious over the flesh, victorious over temptation. He is victorious over sin. Friends, let's bow and let's pray. Gracious Father, we acknowledge that The end of this portion of scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ, he resisted the devil. The devil departed from him until an opportune time. We know that uh, as Jesus' life went on, there were uh, frequent and sincere testing. We see that in the garden. We see it on the cross. 
And we rejoice in what Luke 4 shows us, that here is one able to save, one able to resist Satan. Lord God, we do pray that you would help us in our own lives to live for the glory of Christ, to fight the sin in our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to use your precious, matchless word of God. And so we pray for the glory of Christ in his name. Amen.